Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 13 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. The New Forest is a beautiful and peaceful part of rural Hampshire. Purple heather covers grassland, horses roam freely, deer wander through the woodland. In 1986 the tranquility was disturbed by one of the most heinous crimes in British history. Joseph Cleaver was an 82-year-old retired executive for Kensington publishing company Cleaver Hume Press Limited, which he co-founded in 1923. When he was younger, he bred prize-winning greyhounds. Now he lived a more peaceful life with his wife Hilda. Joseph and Hilda Cleaver were married in 1928. They had three sons, Terry, James and Thomas. After a stroke in 1974, Hilda needed to use a wheelchair. She was paralysed and unable to speak or walk. Joseph became ill around the same time of his wife's stroke and required heart bypass surgery. Despite their health difficulties, Joseph Cleaver was positive. He told a friend, Never mind, nothing to complain about. Lots of people are far worse off than we are. Got to keep cheerful. The pair was said to be enjoying the solitude of retirement at their peaceful home rather than taking an active role in village life. They lived in a large, beautiful, white, vine-covered six-bedroom property, a converted barn, Burgate House, on the sprawling grounds of the Fording Bridge Hampshire Estate. They purchased the property in 1948, but only made the house their permanent place of residence instead of their holiday home in 1970, when Joseph retired. Relatively isolated within seven acres of land and its own swimming pool on the bank of the River Avon, it was the perfect location. 
the couple needed some assistance in their winter years from handymen, gardeners and other staff. Margaret Murphy, originally from West Island, also lived in the house with Hilda and Joseph. At 70 years old, she was a loyal member of staff and an excellent companion to the Cleavers. Margaret had worked for the elderly homeowners as a live-in nurse for the past eight years. She was thought of as one of the Cleaver family. Thomas Cleaver, a business owner, and his wife Wendy, a residential nurse, had travelled from Oxshot in Surrey to spend time with Hilda and Joseph, helping out Thomas's parents until a new housekeeper could be employed. It was Monday, September 1st, 1986. At 8pm, the five were dressed to have dinner in the dining room. The next morning, Tuesday, September 2nd, the Cleaver's housekeeper, Nellie Taylor, arrived for work. Smoke was billowing out of the upstairs windows, which after burning throughout the night were blackened. The housekeeper went inside, seeing dinner plates set out for dinner and the gun cabinet unlocked and empty. It is reported she was greeted by the Cleaver's pet poodle. The poor dog was whimpering, and had a bloody face. It was believed the pet had been struck with some force. She called the gardener Edward Stubbings to come quick, and the pair slowly made their way up the stairs. Wendy and Thomas Cleaver's two Daxons were vigorously scratching at the door of one of the spare bedrooms. Inside, the housekeeper and the gardener found Wendy's naked body. It was impossible for them to enter the master bedroom. The fire had contained itself and the room was like a furnace. When they tried to call the police, the phone didn't work, so they frantically got in the car and drove straight to the police station. When police and the fire crew got to Burgate House, they were met with an eerie sight. A large wooden dining table was covered with a white tablecloth, set for dinner, and half of the main course still remained on the ornate china plates. The cleavers were always punctual, having their evening meal at eight o'clock. They liked tradition and would get dressed for dinner, meeting to have drinks before they ate. The firefighters managed to control the fire enough so both they and police officers could enter the master bedroom. Three badly burned bodies were found. A fourth was discovered in a bathroom, and the body of the fifth victim, Wendy Cleaver, who was found by the domestic staff, was uncharred but mutilated with a knife. She had been left in a spread-eagle position, showing signs of severe sexual assault. Having witnessed such a callous and disturbing scene, the police knew they had to find the culprit, or culprits, fast. Later at a press conference, police were questioned why the RSPCA and a vet had visited the property. Um, There were three dogs in the house, and it looks as though one of the dogs has some injury. So, from a welfare point of view for the dog, we're having him looked at by a vet. Unfortunately, the cleaver's pet poodle had been hurt so badly, it had to be put to sleep. The victims hadn't been officially named yet, but the newspapers speculated their identities. Chief Superintendent Alan Wheeler told the press that night it was a brutal crime and, quote, probably as bad as any murder you are likely to find. a woman had been seen the day of the murders at around 3.20pm in blood-stained clothes with blood on her hands and what appeared to be scratch marks on her face. The police were eager to trace her. 
Her description was a well-spoken woman, approximately 45 to 55 years old, 5 foot 4 with medium-length brown hair. She wore a red anorak, which bore a logo with the word Volcano on it. She was seen at Burgate Manor Farm near Burgate House, where the killings had occurred. She had asked the occupants of the farm if she could use their telephone. It was reported that detectives initially theorised the intruders had entered through an upstairs window. They believed that the killers had waited silently upstairs before they made themselves known. Many articles in the press had dubbed the massacre as the House of Horror Killings. A neighbour, Mr Stollards, lived on a farm almost three quarters of a mile away. His view of where the cleavers lived was hindered by the angle and the trees. Mr Stollard said his father, who passed away ten years earlier, was friendly with the cleavers, but he had not communicated with the couple since that time. He was quoted as saying, They are a very, very quiet couple. They never mingled with the other villagers or go to local restaurants or pubs. Everyone in the village has been shocked by what has happened. Margaret Murphy's son Frank, a lecturer who lived near Bournemouth, was contacted about his mother's death and he was officially asked to identify her. He later spoke about his mother and said, For some time I have been attempting to encourage her to retire, but she was reluctant to do so. She was a woman of integrity, humour, courage and great generosity of soul. Her murder was an obscene outrage. No words are adequate to describe the loss I have sustained and the sense of horror I feel at this appalling crime. The children of Thomas and Wendy, 21-year-old Jason and 19-year-old Melissa, were informed their parents had been killed, along with their grandparents at Burgate House. On September 3rd, A police spokesperson said he couldn't comment how Margaret Murphy had died, only that she had been found in an upstairs smoke-damaged room. Quote, There was a very severe fire in the room where she was found, which hampered inquiries as to the cause of death. Mrs Murphy had not known a lot of people locally. She was dedicated to her job. She did make time to visit the church, The last time, the local priest, Gerard Fallon, remembers he attended the 8.30am mass the Sunday before her murder. The priest said, We are all very shocked. This is a quiet village and not the kind of thing you expect here. Everything is so close-knit. The cleaver's son, James, was requested to go through all of the rooms in his parents' house to see if he noticed if anything was missing. Meanwhile, a forensic team combed every inch of the Cleaver's estate. Joseph and Hilda had a disgruntled ex-employee, George Stevenson, who had been employed as a handyman by the couple. At the same time, the Cleavers employed Stevenson's wife, Fiona, and they lived on the grounds. The month before their murders, the Cleavers found it necessary to fire 35-year-old George Stevenson. Fiona was seen with a face marked with bruises, and Stevenson was suspected of drinking on the job. One night, Fiona ran into the Cleavers' home hysterical, wearing only her underwear, her eyes swollen, forming a bruise. She had to fend off her husband from beating her further, by threatening him with a claw hammer. She left Burgate House and George Stevenson, fleeing to Spain. The couple had been working there for just over a month before their employment ended on August 8th, 1986. George Stevenson was asked politely to leave by the Cleaver's grandson-in-law. The family thought they parted ways amicably. But Stevenson didn't leave empty-handed. He stole bottles of wine, a TV set, 
and the home had been left with minor damage. The village of Fording Bridge, a close-knit community nearby the Cleaver's estate, was a short-lived home for Stevenson after he was dismissed. Julia Brown, who worked at the local butchers, made a comment, quote, He was not the sort of person I expected the Cleavers to employ. He was rough-looking and always wore jeans. He didn't seem to fit. Stevenson moved to Coventry, living with a friend of his, George Daly. They had struck up a friendship after meeting in a pub seven years earlier. They shared an interest in fixing up cars. Daly was living with his girlfriend Ruth on Elgar Road. Stevenson started a relationship with one of Ruth's neighbours, Paula Harrison. It wouldn't be long before the police traced his movements and launched a manhunt to track him down. The public were instructed not to approach him. What I would like to say is that Stevenson is described as a dangerous and violent man. It is for that reason we are disclosing his name at this time. We would like to stress to all members of the public that they should not, under any circumstances, approach him, but contact any police station if they see him. We would like anyone who knows Stevenson has had any contact with him, doesn't matter if it's of recent uh, times, to come forward and help us with this inquiry. The public were advised that Stevenson could be armed with three shotguns and a rifle which were currently missing from the Cleaver's property. Stevenson was described as five foot nine, medium build with dark brown hair and blue eyes. The photograph showed him with a thick moustache. There didn't appear to be anything distinctive about him. Police had uncovered that along with two other males, he had hired a Red Rover 213 with Car Edge C352YIW from Coventry, a place where he had ties and was now reportedly living. Stevenson had obtained the car on Monday, the day of the killings, and returned it on Tuesday. George Daly and his younger brother John had been present at both the time of obtaining the rental and its return. The police appealed to garages and car hire firms throughout Coventry and the surrounding area to get in touch if Stevenson had hired or attempted to rent another vehicle. The woman who was seen bloody at a nearby farm was sought by police. They believed her to be local and a spokesperson appealed through the press saying, we ask for her to come forward because we urgently need to eliminate her from the inquiry. The woman finally came forward, but was quickly eliminated. When it transpired she had become injured when a cow in a field chased her, she tripped over and cut her face. Born in Bishop Auckland, County Durham in the northeast of England during 1951, George Stevenson spent his childhood attending the local public schools, then a boarding school in West Germany. A neighbour, Mrs Hughes, who knew George when he was a boy, realised he was now a wanted man and she conveyed her shock. I can clearly remember the Stevenson boys playing in the street. They were just a quiet, ordinary family that caused no bother. I could never imagine George ending up in this situation. At 16, Stevenson appeared in court for fighting with a fellow teenager and breaking and entering. He received probation. A year later, he moved to Coventry with his parents and three siblings. Stevenson was first married at 21 to a woman called Julia. The union lasted for five years and in that time the couple had a daughter together. Friends in Coventry remembered Stevenson as a ladies' man, but they were unaware of his violent streak. One said, He never had any problem getting the girls. He was a sort of likeable rogue, a ladies' man. 
As for the violence, I didn't think he had the bottle. After his divorce, he drifted from job to job around the country. He had spent time in juvenile detention centres and did stints in prison for burglary, handling drugs, firearm infringements and an incident that ended in Stevenson spraying a policeman's eyes with tear gas while resisting arrest. At the time of being fired by the Cleavers, he was on his second marriage. The wedding was only a year before, after a two-week whirlwind romance. The relationship began a couple of months after his last stint in prison. His parents had now died, and none of his family members attended the wedding. His new wife Fiona quickly began to experience the violent side of a new husband. She told her friends about instances when Stevenson plunged a carving knife into a mattress she was laying on. Other times he dragged her by her hair and pinned her to the ground. One of his brothers Bill said of his younger sibling, George used to put me on edge. Had he not been my brother, I probably wouldn't have given him the time of day. George Stevenson's wife Fiona was now back from Spain and under police protection, while the manhunt for her estranged husband was underway. The couple had found work with the Cleavers after an advert was placed in the Bournemouth Evening Echo newspaper. The Cleavers stated they were looking for a homely couple for their happy home, one person to be employed as a housekeeper and the other as a handyman. The position which included accommodation attracted the attention of the Stevensons, who were living near Bournemouth at the time. The investigation had led detectives to Bournemouth, where George Stevenson had once worked as a croupier. He also had connections to Eastbourne and New Haven. In Bournemouth, officers quizzed some associates of Stevenson's, Harvey Lee and his partner, about a television and a video recorder that was stolen from Burgate House. Lee told them that Stevenson had visited them on the morning of the murders, and in passing he mentioned to Stevenson that the couple's TV set was broken. When Lee and his wife awoke the next day, a TV and VHS video recorder were left on their doorstep. The reason the investigation had managed to trace Harvey Lee so quickly was that paperwork belonging to Stevenson had been found in the Cleaver's home in a downstairs cabinet. Lee, a market stall holder, was marked as a work reference for the noticeably absent George Stevenson. This combined with his extensive criminal record, he seemed the perfect suspect. This morning we've recovered, we believe, the television set from the Bournemouth area and we have circulated the name of a person, a man, George Francis Stevenson, who we are urgently wanting to trace in connection with the burglary at Burgate House. Thursday, September 4th, 1986. George Stevenson handed himself in at a police station near the New Forest in the early hours of the morning. He made the call at 1.42am from a campsite only a few miles from the Cleaver's home. Stevenson had made his way back to the New Forest by train after returning the rental car in Coventry. Regulars in pubs throughout Brockenhurst near the campsite where Stevenson was staying saw a man drinking with dark hair wearing a heavy woolen green jumper and jeans, though he stood out as he appeared nervous and edgy. I was talking to them as the other locals at the bar. We happened to be talking about the, the business at Fordingbridge. And it was soon after that that um, the guy left. So he was obviously, you know, obviously the conversation made him nervous. He didn't speak to anybody else in the bar. He came and sat by himself, had a couple of pints of bitter. And after that, um, after the conversation he must have heard from us, got even more nervous and left. He was looking around all over the place, um, just on the edge of his seat. He looked a worried man, so slightly frightened, perhaps. Yeah. Just generally looked worried. It's the sort of thing you notice in a bar if someone looks worried. Yeah. So, yeah, 
had a couple of pints. Was maybe here half an hour, three quarters of an hour, then left in a hurry without anybody really noticing. George Stevenson wasn't recognisable. He had disposed of his most distinguishable feature, his moustache. Without it, he barely resembled the photographs the authorities had circulated. He had mingled with other people in another pub, the Forester's Arms. A couple who were on holiday played pool with him. The trio were later joined by two other campers, Frankie and Georgia, and they all had a few drinks together. At some point in the evening, Frankie offered to read Stevenson's palm, which he accepted. A witness later recalled their conversation. She uh, took his hands and he said, you just want to hold my hands, really. And uh, he said to me, I think I'm close to the truth and I realise. She she was doing a bit of palmistry and I was talking to the other girl, Georgia, uh, just things in general. I heard her say, you've got a lot of worries. And he said, yes, he said, I've got big worries. Um, I didn't take any notes. I just saw it was sort of some sort of game, you know, palmistry bit. And I then made my excuses and went over back to my wife and beer. And then on the way out, when I was going out, they invited him back to the campsite and he turned around and said, I've been invited back for a candlelit supper. Later, the two women walked back to the campsite with Stevenson and continued drinking alcohol outside their tent. press were told another man was arrested in an armed siege in Coventry just 15 minutes after Stevenson was picked up. Detectives believed he was involved in the murders at Burgate House, helping rent the car that was used to travel over 100 miles to the Cleavers estate and back. Police were still looking for the third man, also spotted when the trio picked up the rental. Later that morning, he was arrested on his way to collect his unemployment benefits. With Stevenson already in police custody, the two men, George and John Daly, were driven to Lindhurst Police Station for questioning. The next day, Stevenson made a very brief court appearance, so police were given a warrant by the courts to interview him in custody for another 24 hours. Even though the drive to court was only 10 minutes away from the police station, A decoy run 10 minutes before Stevenson left was set up to avoid any unwanted media exposure due to the severity of the crimes. An officer sat in a police car with a blanket over his head and was accompanied by eight officers. The actual police car Stevenson was in was tailed by other police vehicles, including two cars and motorbikes. Stevenson's friends in Coventry were stunned. One said, When George was on the run, we heard police described him as dangerous. We all burst out laughing because we didn't think he was like that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Monday, September 8th. Three men were remanded in custody for seven days by the magistrate after an eight minute hearing at Limington Court in the New Forest. No application for bail was put forward, and reporting restrictions were not lifted. The trio only spoke to confirm their names. They were charged with the murders at Burgate House. The three suspects, all from Coventry, were each handcuffed to a police officer. George Francis Stevenson and his associates George and John Daly, in their early and mid-twenties from Beardmore Road in Coventry, were driven back to Limington Police Station. Stevenson sat between two officers in the passenger seat of the police car. He made no attempt to hide his face as photographers clambered to get a shot of the men charged with the new forest murders. The Daly brothers were put in a car together. They used blankets to cover their heads, shielding their faces from the cameras. The public's emotions ran high, an angry crowd gathered outside the court for the short hearing. Security was tight, officers stood guard outside, and one patrolled the roof. A funeral service for the four cleavers was held on October 4th, 1986 at St Andrew's Church in Oxshot, Surrey. Along with 150 mourners, Thomas and Wendy's children, Jason and Melissa, wept over the loss of both their parents and paternal grandparents, Joseph and Hilda. The real horrors of what unfolded at Burgate House on that September night began to unravel. Enraged and bitter about being, as he believed, wrongly let go by the cleavers, George Stevenson hatched a plan with George Daly while they were living together. They would soon be joined by Daly's younger brother, John. Stevenson was convinced the pensioners had cash and jewellery stashed around their home 
and the trio planned to take it. They hired the Red Rover from Coventry and drove to the Cleaver's home in Hampshire, stopping off at Bournemouth purchasing string and rubber gloves. They were armed with pickaxe handles and two empty petrol canisters, which they filled up at a garage not far from the Cleaver's home. All three wore stockings over their heads in an attempt to hide their faces. Stevenson knew the Cleaver's set routine. They had dinner at eight. But he had no way of knowing the three elderly residents, Joseph, Hilda and Margaret, were joined this evening by 49-year-old Thomas and his wife Wendy, 46. The three assailants burst into the Cleaver's dining room in the middle of dinner. Stevenson had known the front door key was kept in the porch until 9pm. He had stopped off at the gun cabinet on the way to the dining room. Stevenson was now armed and the dailies had pickaxe handles. Terrified, the five agreed to do whatever the intruders asked if they just took what they wanted and left. They were told to go upstairs. Wendy, petrified and screaming, was separated from the others and taken to a separate room. Joseph, Thomas and Margaret were ushered to a bedroom upstairs and tied up, unable to escape. Hilda, who was in no position to move from her wheelchair, was put with them. Forced into another room, Thomas's wife Wendy was bound, gagged and raped by all three men before she was killed. Stevenson and the Daly brothers ransacked the house looking for what they came for, money. But they were mistaken. The Cleavers didn't have any wedges of cash just sitting around. The assailants found a grand total of £90 and some jewellery, but it didn't hold the sort of financial worth they were hoping for. They split the money between them. The trio had neglected to discover a safe behind the curtains in the master bedroom. They also didn't find £700 in cash and a large amount of American currency that was hidden in an unlikely place. Thomas Cleaver had lost a leg in a car accident. He used his prosthetic leg to hide some valuables while keeping them on his person. The trio didn't just leave after raping Wendy and ransacking the house. They hadn't finished with the people being held upstairs. The master bedroom where four of the captives were bound was doused with petrol and firelighters, as were Hilda, Margaret, Joseph and Thomas. Stevenson also scattered firelighters around the house. Later, according to George Daly, who was at this point loading the rental car with the items they had stolen, Stevenson said, They are already dead, and I have poured petrol on them. Daly went inside and threw a match at the upstairs banister, and with a whoosh, the fire raged and flames quickly engulfed the master bedroom. Stevenson and the Daly brothers fled with their meagre, ill-gotten gains, watching from the rearview mirror, a house ablaze with five people inside, but whether some knew it or not, four were still alive. Joseph, Hilda and Margaret succumbed to the fumes and fire in the room. Miraculously, Thomas managed to free himself from his bindings when they caught fire and attempted to get to the bathroom to try and smash a window to get out. But tragically, Thomas fell back, overcome by the heat and fumes before he could break the window. He singed the flooring where he fell. In a police interview, 21-year-old John Daly admitted strangling Wendy after they assaulted her. He claimed Stevenson left the room, then came back with a black ribbon-like piece of cloth and laid it down. John knew what Stevenson wanted to do without him speaking the words. He later said, He didn't say anything, but I knew what they were for. To kill her with. I turned her onto her face, slipped the cloth around her neck, and pulled tight. Her face went blue, and she died. Wendy was the only one murdered before the upstairs of the house was set ablaze. 
The three culprits assumed with the two-gallon containers of petrol and the firelighters, the house would continue to burn with the intensity it did before they left and quickly burned down, destroying any evidence. They were wrong. Even though the house and the people inside were not discovered until the next morning, the fire remained relatively isolated within the master bedroom. The house, once a barn, had been renovated in the early 1940s with concrete walls and beams, as the timber required for such a job wasn't readily available in wartime. The concrete stopped the flame spreading to the rest of the house, including the bedroom where Wendy was killed, leaving her body the way it was left when emergency services arrived. The Dailies and Stevenson fled in the rental car after Burgate House was set on fire. They made a pit stop at Bournemouth on their way back to Coventry. They arrived home late and bragged to George Daly's girlfriend Ruth about their new guns. With the weapons, they planned to carry out armed robberies and already had a job in mind, a wages office in a factory in Nuneaton. Ruth said the three had brought a collection of bottles into the house, including good quality wines, gin, whiskies, and vodka. The bottles had been stolen from the cleaver's cocktail cabinet. The trio cracked them open and started a drinking session until early the next morning. The next day, still bragging about the success of the previous night, they were interrupted when they saw George Stevenson was a wanted man on television. Stevenson called the police and said he was going to give himself up. He then travelled by train to the New Forest and had one last night of drinking before two police officers collected him from the campsite he called from. Stevenson's estranged wife Fiona started receiving letters from him while he was in jail. An extract from one read, The police have explained to me you never want to see me again. I fully understand and respect how you feel after our parting and this horrific atrocity that's been committed. George Stevenson didn't know that Fiona had contacted the police, putting his name forward as soon as she found out about the murders. In a taped interview, John Daly said that Stevenson had told him and his brother before they went to the house that the Cleavers would have to be, quote, popped off in case they recognised him. Popped off meaning killed. He went on to say that regardless, they didn't recognise him, so he didn't know why they had to be killed. George Daly claimed they purchased the petrol on the way to Fording Bridge to burn their clothes after they robbed the house. He said all three mutually agreed to go there for easy money because Stevenson knew they could get into the property without much hassle as he knew where the key was kept. Daly claimed after they had taken their hostages upstairs, Stevenson disappeared into another room dragging Wendy with him. He ordered the Dailies to search for the safe. They came up empty-handed, and when George Daly went to tell Stevenson, Daly claimed he witnessed him raping Wendy Cleaver. He said Stevenson said something like, We've all got her. Daly said he got on the bed with Wendy, but felt nauseous. Quote, I was on her for about four or five seconds, then I went to sit in another room. He claimed when he left, Wendy was still alive. Daly went to the main room where they put the other three cleavers and Margaret Murphy. His brother John was in there crying, so George started to pack the car with the items they had stolen. He told police he didn't know who killed Wendy. In George Stevenson's first interview, in spite of his telephone call to police, he pointed the finger at someone else entirely. He claimed on the day of the murders he was driving to Bournemouth from Coventry when he saw two men who turned out to be Hell's Angels hitchhiking at the side of the road. He pulled over to give them a lift. Stevenson alleged during this journey with the two strangers, he discussed the Cleaver's house. 
he said. I was telling them about the house. It must have been them that went there and killed them. Later in a taped interview, when told the Daily Brothers informed police he was the ringleader, Stevenson said, That's rubbish. I've done nothing. I haven't been there. I killed no one. I am no murderer. I have no blood on my hands, whether human or animal. I feel sorry for the dailies having done it. I stick to my story. I have no hatred for the family. They were good to me. I can swear to God I killed, hurt, raped and burned nobody. Detective Chief Superintendent Alan Wheeler was sure George Stevenson was the instigator in committing the crime, saying, It's all tied up with revengeful killings for being sacked. He was jealous of what they had, and I have no doubt there was hatred. They had everything he did not. Respectability, wealth, decency, a good standard of living. He recruited the two dailies, but it was Stevenson who was the prime mover behind this. He had been sacked from his work at Burgate House, and he'd gone back there determined to carry out what in fact they did. When I say that this was a vengeful killing, it's quite clear that the motive behind this was to violently kill these five people. If you examine the evidence... The trial began at Winchester Crown Court on October 6th, 1987. The jury consisted of eight men and four women. All three of the accused pleaded not guilty to the five counts of murder. John Daly pleaded guilty to rape and robbery, though George Daly and George Stevenson denied rape. Prosecuting QC David Elpha told the court about the night where five people were brutally and senselessly murdered at Burgate House the year before. Stevenson and the Daly's accounts had shifted and changed, each blaming the other while minimising their own involvement. Elpha postulated that the motivation for Stevenson was greed, jealousy at the Cleaver's lifestyle and anger at being dismissed from his job. They were in it for the money, guns, ammunition, jewellery, a TV and video, and any other valuables they could find, the prosecutor said. But the plan went further. No one was going to be allowed to live to tell the tale, and the house was then to be burned to the ground, covering all clues to what happened that night. Nobody was going to be allowed to come out alive. The Cleavers family, including Thomas and Wendy's two children, attended court most days of the trial. They had been advised not to attend due to the horrific nature of the evidence. Some quietly wept as the details about what happened to their loved ones unfolded. On the first day they had seats in the public gallery, by the next they were moved to a new position at the well of the court near to the jury box. They will move once again to the press benches when Stevenson and the Dailies gave evidence, so they would not have to directly face them. Gabriel Guerrero, who was married to Joseph Van Hilder's granddaughter Julie, was the only family member to take the stand. He had met George Stevenson during his short employment at the Cleaver's home. Guerrero had played squash on the grounds with him. He said that Stevenson remarked that he took the job because he wanted to hunt and fish and he looked forward to the country life. Guerrero was the one that told Stevenson to leave and after he did he noticed a TV and some bottles of wine were missing and a glass door had been smashed in the small house they were staying in just 20 feet away from the Cleaver's home. He thought George Stevenson had left without any animosity. It was revealed that Jason, Thomas and Wendy's son, had called Burgate House to speak to his parents the night they were murdered. During his first call, a man with a voice he didn't recognise answered. He refused to allow Jason to speak to his parents or grandparents. After that call, he rang two more times. On the third, Thomas was made to talk to his son. He reassured him everything was okay but his mother had the flu and was too sick to come to the phone.
George Stevenson's estranged wife Fiona was requested as a prosecution witness. A police car picked her up and brought her to court. She was only clothed in her pyjamas. She attended the trial for three days, but was not required to take the stand in the end, as the judge ruled she could not give evidence for legal reasons. From the witness box, George Daly's partner Ruth explained she was a widow with three children and was finding it hard to comprehend the man she lived with was responsible for such heinous murders. She said Daly had repeatedly told her that he didn't do it and she didn't know what to believe. There are so many unanswered questions. I don't think he did it. I can't imagine George doing something like that, she said. She claimed she had never experienced George Daly's violent side, though he did have a temper and got nasty if things were not done exactly how he wanted them to be done. Ruth did say that Stevenson had the vicious streak that others had described. Towards the end of her time on the stand, she broke down, confessing she still had feelings for George Daly, saying she loved him. That's just my emotional feelings, she said. She told the court she wouldn't visit him in prison if he were convicted. She stated, I have to cut him off somewhere. Ruth said once the three men had seen George Stevenson was a wanted man on TV, they got the guns out of the house. She saw them being removed from a home in a black refuse sack. Later, John Daly divulged to police where the firearms were hidden. After Ruth, her friends and neighbours took the stand, the court heard from George Stevenson's girlfriend, 19-year-old Paula Harrison. She said Stevenson repeatedly claimed he wasn't responsible for the murders, but she said, At one stage he told me he knew the people who had done the murders. He had told them about the house and said, in theory, he was as guilty as they were. She later told the reporter what George Stevenson had left on a telephone message and what it was like seeing him in court. Don't worry. I love you and I'll be back. Today was the first time I've seen him and he smiled at me in the courtroom as if nothing had happened. I just couldn't believe that. He hasn't got any feelings, but I'm all right. The court also heard from the women George Stevenson met at the pub The Forester's Arms before he gave himself up. They said they had sat down and one of the men playing pool had asked them for change. On the table where they sat was a newspaper, the Coventry Evening Telegraph, which was slightly unusual to see in the area. On the front page there was a photograph of a man with dark hair and a moustache who was wanted by police. The person who asked them for change came across as nervous, but he didn't immediately resemble the black and white image of the man on the paper. He had his hair in a curtain style and no moustache. The man in the wanted picture's hair was shorter and swept forward over his forehead. Frankie, or Francis as she was otherwise known, was a nursing student. She told the court, He said his name was Ray. He seemed very nervous and uptight about something. We asked him about it and he said he had been set up for something. He would not say what it was and we had a guessing game about what it was. They went back to the campsite and drank wine outside their tent. The topic of what he had done came up again, and he responded, Did you read the paper? Yes, one of the women replied. Did you read it properly? Frankie read the article on the massacre, and Stevenson showed her his driving license after she asked if his name was George. The young woman asked if he had done it. He said he hadn't. They drank and smoked cannabis for about half an hour. Then one of the young women asked him to sign the picture in the newspaper. And he did. George Stevenson's brother Bill told the court about the years his brother spent running drugs into England from Morocco and Turkey. He smuggled cannabis, cocaine, amphetamines and LSD in a hidden compartment in a camper van and at one point narrowly missed imprisonment in Turkey by paying off police. Bill said, 
Even in the 70s, he was making over 40,000 a year, bringing drugs into Britain. George Stevenson took the stand, dropping the story about the hitchhiking Hell's Angels. He now confessed to being at Burgate House the night of the murders, but claimed he was merely the getaway driver that waited in the car. When discussing the cleavers, he said, I would not have harmed them. They were lovely people. They had been good to me. On Tuesday, October 27th, 1987, George Stevenson and George Daly were convicted of rape and robbery, John Daly having admitted to the charges at the start of the trial. George Daly expressed no emotion, but Stevenson shook his head while staring at the jury. After five and a half hours of deliberations, the jury had failed to reach a verdict regarding the murder charges. They retired to the hotel for a night, and came back to court to make their decision the following day. The next day, when the verdicts were read out, Stevenson looked at George and John Daly, who were stood beside him. George Daly leant over and spoke a few words to his brother John as all the colour drained from his face, shaking his head. John Daly was convicted unanimously of strangling Wendy Cleaver and a majority verdict of 11 to 1 convicted him for the other four murders. He was given several life terms. George Daly was cleared of murder. He was convicted on four counts of manslaughter and jailed for 22 years. George Stevenson was convicted unanimously by a jury for the murder of four of the five victims, Joseph, Hilda, Margaret and Thomas. He was given multiple life sentences with the recommendation that he should not be released for 25 years. The judge told him, These murders were committed in circumstances of indescribable brutality and cruelty. You showed no mercy and you deserve none. Stevenson is a vain show-off with a dangerous charm. He used his silver tongue to convince men to join him in killing and women to believe he was innocent. He's never shown any remorse. The smooth-talking, handsome killer believed, despite overwhelming evidence against him, that he could twist the jury as he twisted others with his lies and walk away a free man. When he knew police were after him, he was so sure he could convince them that he was innocent, he decided to give himself up. The Cleaver family issued a statement. We are all very relieved that the three men responsible for such terrible acts have been brought to justice and receive such penalties as are provided under existing English law. Now that the trial is finally over, we can attempt to resume our normal lives. However, as a family, our lives can never be the same again. The murder of our family last year dealt a tragic blow to those of us who now remain. We could not even attempt to put into words the impact of this and the deep grief that this and the loss of our much-loved family nurse has caused us all. It has been necessary for us all to go through the trial process to help each other and as a duty to those we've lost. Not knowing what happened during the evening of September 1st, 1986 has been a heavy burden to bear. We have felt a great need to take part, albeit silently. So where are we now? In 1989, the Cleaver's home was demolished. New buildings were erected on the land. Fourteen years after George Stevenson's conviction, Jack Straw, the Home Secretary at the time, increased his minimum sentence by ten years. He appealed the additional time he had to serve, but the High Court decided in May 2008 it should be upheld. George Stevenson can apply for parole in 2021.
thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please see our show notes or visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.